in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. And my co-host, Patrick Pister, he's missing in action. I don't know where he went. So I end up doing this one by myself, doing it solo, but not really by myself because I have a guest today. So I have Tom Ferris, a PhD, Associate Professor of Industrial and Systems Engineering, A&M University. How are you doing today, Tom? I'm great. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And before we get into the whole reason you and I are having this discussion, I want to just tell the audience, if you want to support the show, leave us a review. It takes all of two minutes. We got a great one from look, T-Rex 6987. I love the show. I look forward to this podcast every week. I'm in the oil field, but not in HS&E. However, I always learn something new and valuable from Patrick and Mark. Keeping everybody safe is all of our responsibility. So keep up the awesome work. So thank you, thank you, thank you for the review. Please, if you want to support the show, leave us a review. So Thomas, we're sitting here, College Station. It's gorgeous outside. Uh, we had a, a tour of some of the work that you're doing out there, but you're really focusing on the studying and the, and the challenges around different cognitive states. Our audience is going, what does that mean? <laughs> right. So, yeah, here in uh, Texas A&M University and in our industrial and systems engineering department, we have a solid group that I like to, to say I'm a, I'm a big part of, uh, which look at uh, human factors, engineering issues, human systems interaction issues in a variety of work domains. So I do a lot of work with what I call interesting cognitive states, challenging cognitive states. So if you can think about and you know, a lot of lot of domains are going to come to mind right away, but any environment where you have humans that are dealing with extreme levels of cognitive workload are maybe dealing with with stressors either on the job or from outside that they bring in, maybe are dealing with uh, emotional states that can affect how they process information, how they make decisions. And then some of the interesting things we're looking at are the very short timeline startles or panic moments. Uh, so like uh, our work in the driving domain works very well for this because something unexpected happens on the roadway. You generally have you know a short period of time to respond. And if you are also panicked and also uh, you know uh, dealing with the acute effects of stress, then then you're not going to be at your best cognitively. And so we we try to detect those states with our research, and we try to design for humans that are in those states because, in a lot of ways, when we're under some of these really interesting cognitive states. Uh, we lose a lot of our ability to to think like like higher order uh, animals. Basically, we become we become the scared rabbit looking for uh, a way to escape the tiger. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, in a lot in a lot of ways, we we boil it down to that most common uh, you know intuitive way that people will respond, and we we see what we can do. Yeah, it is fascinating. So, uh, in in oil and gas industry in particular, there are a lot of those type of stresses that are daily occurrences. Mm -hmm. Right? You mentioned driving, just driving back and forth to work is something out of the ordinary happens and you get into that fight or flight or fight response, mm -hmm. you don't make always the right decisions. Right, right, right. And there are a lot of, in fact, it's just decisions is just uh, the end game here in processing all the information around us. But, you know, these types of stressors can affect your attention, what you pay attention to, how, how broadly you can divide your attention. So you hear a number of cases of, 
you know, people, when you say, hey, tell me about the scariest moment you had on the job, and they can give you a lot of detail about it, but it's also, if you were to be able to, you know, climb inside their head and experience what they were, what they were processing, it's all of their attentional capacity gets focused on the nature of this problem or where they think the problem is, and they can't see just a little bit outside of that. Yeah, it is funny. Yeah. I've been in those situations myself. You do get that mm -hmm. tunnel vision. You, yeah, don't, right. you don't realize in the moment, right, because mm -hmm. it's, it's a survival mechanism, but you do get that tunnel vision. You may be totally focused on that piece of pipe that's coming down from, from the top of the tower, but you may not notice that right next to you, just six inches to your right, there's a swing and chain, right, because exactly. you're totally focused. Exactly right. And it's Especially if you are feeling threatened and you're and you're you know you're scared you're panicked, then you have a really extreme version of that. And so you know, I also like examples from like law enforcement. This is a pretty good. You get a lot of stories from this, but in cases where they are you know following a suspect and maybe they have to draw a weapon, they talk about how everything slows down and they process the threat with great you know with great depth. Uh, but just on the other, you know, just that little detail right over here gets lost. And you know, the brain's doing what it should. It should focus all of its energy on what's a potential stress or th a threat. But, you know, sometimes that you need to look a little bit more broadly to solve the problem. Yeah. And so before we got on the microphone, you gave me a tour and I met some of your just bright, crazy, good, awesome students oh, doing yeah. some really cool stuff. And it's amazing to see that this not only is it a science, which I knew it was a science, but that y'all are actually studying things out there to help make different industries safer. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, you know, we start with being able to know, well, what happens when humans experience these sorts of stressors? And it's a natural part of life. You know, you, you can't say, hey, don't come into work emotional because everybody has these these emotional events in life that they bring with them. And so instead of saying, you know, try to fix the human, let's see if we can adapt the system around the human. And if we know that, for example, it's going to be really hard for a person in a stressed out state to recognize something that's a little unusual out of the ordinary. You know, when we, when we're under stress, we tend to go to what's the most familiar, uh, what's the most reliable. And that's a lot of times, if you have an unusual problem, that's not where you're going to find the solution. So, so, you know, we try to uh, find ways to say, we know this is going to be extra challenging for humans in this context. What can we do, you know, with the system around the human with display design? So think of like in the vehicle, how can we draw attention to those things that might otherwise get missed on a very short timeline and see if people can, you know, respond more safely. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you actually showed me that one of the, your students actually work on that exact problem. So, and, and, it, and it took me a second for, for it to make sense in my head, but when you're in a vehicle, even if you have a display screen, mm -hmm. you're dividing your visual attention, which is the most important part of driving the vehicle is mm -hmm. that visual attention. Mm -hmm. And your students working on a tactile feedback system so that you don't actually have to look at the screen to maneuver through it. And it's, it's a simple idea, but it's genius. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and th that's a lot of the directions where I've gone with my research over the past 10 years. And in this particular case, yes, it's it's a great application to look at the sense of touch, because especially in uh, resource constrained environments like driving, you know, you need your vision on the roadway as much as you can. You need your hands on the steering wheel as much as you can. Any additional task that takes my my manual uh, skills or my vision away is going to cost me in, in the driving task. And so then we look at, well, are there other ways to convey certain information so we don't have to require more visual or don't have to require the hands? Of course, in this case, touchscreen, you're still using your hands, but that's kind of some of the design theory that we that we we try to apply. And the thing I like, like the most what y'all do and what y'all are doing is working on real 
problems with real practical solutions. This, this, even though we're in a school of academia, what I saw today wasn't academia. It was real stuff that you could apply to genuine problems with, the, and it's a real solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. So I, I'd like to say we get closer to in the field commercializing these solutions, but I think that's the a lot of what we do is the you know proof of concept stuff really want to be pushing this into the commercialized industry and then that's kind of a that's that's a frontier that uh, we're working on <laughs> getting more involved in i suppose so yeah and it's it's also amazing all the different uh, sciences that your students are reaching out to you know their their toolbox if you will comes from every piece of technology i mean we had some some 3D animation stuff going on. We had some simulations going on. We had tactile sensors going on. And so you, you, you've taken your students and saying, here's the problems. Mm -hmm. And then you just let them figure out the smartest way. I mean, you're not, you're, mm -hmm. not, you're not looking at one particular group of technology. You're pulling from every place that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's what, what you do when you're uh, pushing the boundaries of research. And so, you know, here at Texas A&M, if I can, you know, toot our horn a little bit, we're, we're a top engineering institution and we bring in people, you know, by nature of our field, we need people who know the human sciences. And when you have, you know, a, a community of people who bring in all kinds of different knowledge, you know, we were talking earlier with the student who had spent spent time uh, working on oil field related problems. And, you know, that was news to me, actually. It was really cool to hear him, uh, you know, get to geek out with you a little bit. Yeah, and we did geek out, yeah. too. <laughs> it's um, I have a passion for this industry and he does, too. Mm -hmm. and, and he has a pat. You can tell he's going far. And so all your students seem to be bright. Uh, very motivated, high energy, social students. And I just love to see this new generation that's coming into the workforce and, and coming to the oil and gas industry. They're, they're going to be game changers. Mm -hmm. So I want to back you up a little bit. It's how did you get your start? Because oh, yeah. this is fascinating stuff and you don't sound like you're from East Texas. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. No, no, I'm a, well, you know, I'm as Texan as anything at this point. I, I grew up in a lot of different places in, in the United States, mostly in the Midwest and then I came out of Lincoln, Nebraska. It's my last, my last non, <laughs> my last residence with family, I suppose. And then went to University of Iowa, and I studied industrial engineering there. And I discovered that I could combine my interest in human psychology into this industrial engineering and the process of making work systems work better, but from the angle of how do we make it work better for the human in that. And went to grad school from there. I went to the University of Michigan, and you know had a great. Great graduate experience, did work with uh, humans in high workload environments where their senses are in high demand. I worked in anesthesia, anesthesiology. And then when I came to Texas A&M after I graduated, you know, it was a big move to come down south here. But hey, Texas A&M is a great engineering school. And of the places, you know, I wanted to go with my with my family and, and look where we could lay our roots, the opportunities here in, in southeast Texas, east Texas fantastic as far as uh, you know what we can do and where we can grow and I think this meeting right now is something that maybe wouldn't have been on my uh, you know in my world uh, if I had gone somewhere else so this is this is pretty great yeah it's um, the oil and gas industry loves a and yeah, right? yeah and it's some of the best engineers and and I know I'm gonna get hate mail over this I don't, I don't I'm not disparaging anybody but some of the best engineers in the oil and gas industry come out of this university ah. so that's your kind of your backstory you you have a genuine passion around this I can tell just by the just by the way we interacted before we got on mm -hmm. the microphone you know that combination of what's the human factor with the engineering side mm -hmm. I can tell you have a passion around that. And the cool thing is some of the work you're, you and your, your students are doing here are going to actually move that needle, right? So you're going to help reduce incidents. You're going to help make stuff 
easier to operate, more intuitive to operate, which only increases productivity. And what's cool is, is we're at this point, this, this perfect storm, and I don't know if I've talked about it on this show, but I've talked about it on some of our other shows, where our industry, the oil and gas industry, is changing like it's never changed before. And it's kind of cool to see y'all on the forefront of trying to introduce things into our industry to make it safer and easier for, for people to get their job done. Right. Yeah. And, and that's that's a very good way to generically describe the problems that we target. So as soon as we can see that, hey, there are human issues here that may make this whole system more, you know, at higher risk of error or less efficient or, you know, however you're measuring your output there. And then we we got to drill down into it and understand on the basic level, the basic psychology, the basic, you know, physical interaction sense, you know, how are these, uh, where can we find the, the room to, to make the design improvements? And then we come up with sometimes what seem on the surface to be somewhat unusual or almost uh, impractical at first. Like, for example, these, this array of vibrating motors that people would get on their back. And, you know, that's a little bit far out there. But if we can show that, hey, no, this actually relates to this instance in the processing of your environment and in doing this task safely. And if we have this here, look at the advantage and then we can test it. You know, we can build build our prototypes. We can run some studies that can really compare objectively what are the performance outcomes. Then that's, you know, that's the steps that get people to their PhD. You know, my students, you know, they're, they're working hard all the time to to get through those studies and publish our work and everything. And then, yes, it's definitely uh, in the cards that in the you know, we can take those solutions and, and further develop them in industry. We haven't been around here for long enough, I think, to really get a foothold in that. But that's ultimately where we want to go. We want to make real impact. Yeah. So, Tom, just by coming on the show, you have now exposed what you and your students are doing to a whole bunch yeah, of people have right. an interest in that. <laughs> so at the end of the show, we'll put your contact information, the university's contact information. So anybody in the audience that wants to learn more. Can. Oh, that'd be fantastic. But let me ask you, so as somebody that used to do market research for a living, one of the things that's really hard to do is sometimes get out of your own way, right? You have a preconceived notion or, or your students have a preconceived notion of what the solution might be. And sometimes mm -hmm. that gets in your way and it's really hard to get that out of the way so you can be open-minded. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. That's It's funny to hear you say that because I feel like a little bit of a broken record in what we're teaching our students. We uh, For a class that I'm teaching, so we have a, a required human systems interaction class. It's, it's our, you know, all of our junior students take it. It's a lot of them, it's the first time where they have a ambiguously defined problem, let's say. And we, we make a human systems problem. So right now the students are looking at these uh, soda machines where you can uh, program your own soda. You can, you can mix like five or six sodas or whatever. And, and looking at the human interaction issues with that, it's a pretty open-ended problem. So we have them along the way say, you know, first you need to really define your system here. So you look at what are the human attributes that contribute to this? And so you think about things like, well, is the user of a certain age, of a certain stature? I mean, what's, what can they reach? What can can they read, for example? You know, are, uh, do they need to know things like, all right, are these caffeinated versus uncaffeinated? You know, all, all of these things that various humans may be more important for some than others. But defining the range of characteristics that we have to consider and defining things like the space and kind of the, uh, you know, the types of tasks you need to do. And we say there's a three-step process here. You you first you you set the playing field. You define it very clearly where you're going to analyze. Then you analyze to find the problems. Then third step is solutions to the problems. 
but it's very easy for a student to go right in and say, well, here, I can already see what the solution should be. And then if you're driven by that, if you say, you know, I already know what, what needs to be done here, you know, your problem is you're, you don't have this specific type of interface or something like that. What you're really saying is you've already found a solution and all of your analysis is going to be in the light of that solution that you've identified. So I'm always kind of pushing back and saying, I know you're excited about solutions and that shouldn't be completely forgotten, but realize that I only, I want you to do this in a forced stepwise manner and try to forget that you've already got this great idea and see if you can find problems, describe them in a way where there, there may lead to better solutions or other solutions than you've already found. Yeah. We're going to geek out here for a second. So that's, okay, that's actually called a confirmation bias, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very so good. what happens is you tend to give more weight to solutions that mirror your own inner beliefs that's right and less weight to stuff that doesn't mirror your inner beliefs which then gets in your way a whole bunch when you're actually trying to do real valuable research and so you see that in oil and gas all the time i've seen it for, for, for 20 years right some senior guy there'll be an incident on a rig some senior guy will go well the problem is joe wasn't qualified and so they get rid of joe or joe wasn't wearing joe's got his fingers pinched oh we need better gloves mm. That may not be the problem at all. Mm -hmm. At all, it may be that Joe needed better training. Mm -hmm. It may be there wasn't enough light on the rig that happened at night, right? But if if you think you know the problem, then of course you're right. All the data mm -hmm. that you gather supports your hypothesis, mm -hmm. which then just self confirms that you're right, and you could easily be wrong. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah, and that's one of the key challenges, especially for you know when the stressors come in. So let me ask you a question. So. We have those stressful situations, mm. right? And you start losing your higher functioning abilities. Then, of course, you could go back to what you think your thoughts and your beliefs are, which may mm. very well not be the right course of action. Right, right. Yeah. And, and we're that much more challenged to think outside the box. So we rely more and more on the shortcuts our brain takes, you know, as we're as we are uh, dealing with the stressors and the narrowing effects. And we also have reduction in our working memory. And so we can't we can't take in and, and process as much information. So we, we need things to be simplified. And so we go to our brain's shortcuts. And the confirmation bias is one of them that in a lot of contexts that can work. But of course, we know when you have a really complex problem, it, you don't want to be locked into only uh, what your first initial thought might be. Right? Yeah, that's why when you step into any military plane in the U.S., there's a red big red lever that's mm -hmm. the eject because in that stressful situation right. it's just a big red lever and your training kicks in and you grab it and, and you go right that's because somebody thought through that and realized that in that type of stressful situation you can't punch in a seven digit key code <laughs> right, and right flip seven valves in the right you just need a big red lever right yeah and you don't have you know you don't have the time nor do you have the dexterity under those sorts of contexts, nor can you, maybe you can't remember, you know, a complex right. code, for example. So yeah, you, you got to be dealing with that scared rabbit. And how do you do that? You make it as obvious and as, you know, right in front of them as possible. Of course, you don't want uh, the big red lever to then be something that might get bumped under normal operations. But one way you can do that is so even, even when we are under these extreme stressors, our physical ability to produce force doesn't tend to change very much. So you can you can have those sorts of controls really requiring a lot more human force and not so much deep <laughs> cognitive thought, right? Right. So I want to go back to something you touched earlier. So when you think about designing systems in a in a mm -hmm. in a work environment where there's hazards, it's um how important is the very front end the initial design like before you start putting subsystems and everything else but somebody to step back and look at the entire operation from a big picture point of view before they start coming up with solutions 
that's a challenge, right? So that, you know, in systems engineering, we try to develop the skill set of looking at it from that high angle and recognizing that, you know, when you deconstruct a system down to its smaller and smaller elements, you're not describing the entire complexity of how these things work together. So, you know, that's one of the, it's a challenge in itself just to get people to be thinking, okay, I need, I need to go broader than this nicely scoped problem uh, in order to really you know, to reach that 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 uh, solution. So we need to be able to see that higher level, how everything works together. And I can't remember what the question was originally. <laughs> mm, so, sorry. so the question is, when you're looking at a workplace environment that has inherent dangers, right? And you're looking at designing it, if you could design it from scratch, if you design the systems from okay. scratch, how important is it to step back and look at the entire big picture operations instead of just starting to throw parts and pieces in there? Right. Yeah. And, and okay. So that's a major challenge, right? So in industrial engineering, and we are industrial and systems engineering, one of the skill sets we try to instill in our students is the ability to recognize that systems work in a lot more complex uh, interactions than they do on, you know, isolated elements in the system. I mean, everything contributes to the system, but there's a lot that can be lost if you drill in too specifically. So having that ability to step back and look at the whole system and realize, you know, on a macro level that this subsystem will have to interact with that one and and the healthy interactions there are what make the whole thing work. And so now we have to be able to, with that whole picture in mind, and a lot of times it's describing it in a generic enough way, like we were talking about with confirmation bias, so we don't get too much into the language of potential solutions. But then you can, uh, you know, when you have a generic description, then we have the knowledge from a broad range of, you know, it do- doesn't have to be anymore in the in the specific domain you're designing for. So we have a problem or a design in oil and gas. Maybe we can describe it in a way where we say, this is a human operator that's, you know, monitoring a, an, a highly automated system. They have to provide control input at various times. They have to be aware of potential breakdowns and deal with them. That describes a lot of different industries, you know, a lot of different domains. So we have solutions that we can start to look at from the other domains and say, hey, can we apply that to this specific case too? So like I had mentioned, I, I did my, um, some of my earlier research with uh, anesthesiology. This is a great environment for looking at things like attentional demand and monitoring, you know, in this case, a, a living patient, but then also managing their, their descent into being anesthetized and bringing them back to life, essentially. But that sort of description can be applied to aviation. You can say you've got, you know, pilots and got a complex system that they're managing. They're taking inputs. They're managing, you know, they're taking an aircraft into the sky and then they have to bring it back down just like a patient goes under and has to come back up. And we can apply the same sort of, you know, generic problem solving between the two. So if we look at aviation, we say, you know, here's an environment where we know about what pilots need to receive as far as information and we know the limitations. They only have, you know, one field of view they can process at a time. They've got other senses we can deal with. And so, you know, some of the research is, well, look at what could be done in aviation and the problems that have been solved there. Can similar solutions now go into, you know, oil and gas? Can it go into driving? Can it go into, you know, all, all of the other domains that we're looking at? 
Yeah, and we're starting to see some of that. It's um, nobody's figured out yet, but things like heads-up displays. Oh yeah, the industry, the long gas industry as a whole, is looking at that very hard because they know there's some utilitarian uses for it, and at the same time, they also knew that's going to drive some safety factors. Just nobody's figured out, but the military has used heads-up displays mm-hmm. for at least a decade by now. Yeah, yeah, and I think what we're seeing is the you know the commercial availability of these systems is is becoming realistic for a lot more domains now, uh, and even for personal use, right? So we can get these, we can get virtual reality sets with our next smartphone upgrade, you know, right. or, or have been for a couple of years now. And so, the, you know, this is allowing a ton of really high powered tools to be introduced into these domains. And it's, you know, you can think of, uh, you know, I know we were talking earlier, but just being able to visualize uh, the operations from a virtual perspective and to actually be able to see what's going on with the drill from right on top of the drill, right? And and to actually feel like you are physically present there, you're getting more cues about that environment. You're going to have a much deeper understanding about what's going on down there and you can more effectively manage it. Yeah, because it plays into our our the way we sense the world as human beings. Mm-hmm. We, we're not designed to sense the world through an Excel spreadsheet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if you can hear it, see it, touch it, right? right? We Our brain process love that sort of stuff. So I, I'm yeah, kind yeah. of get off off subject just a little bit, just because it's not that often we have a professor on the show. This new generation, your students, the ones you're teaching, right? Mm-hmm. They are so bright and they're like sponges, right? They're no, sucking great. up information. They love it. Is the way they look at the world as far as systems different because they grew up as tech natives or do they mm-hmm. look at the world the same as every generation before? And I just want your opinion on that as, <laughs> as somebody that, that's an educator for, for these mm-hmm. our young people. Well, what's interesting, I think along those lines, the generational differences is how willing younger people are to accept technologies as almost an extension of their own person. Right. Right. So think of our smartphones and the fact that, you know, we no longer have to memorize 10 to 20 phone numbers. In fact, I don't even know what my son's phone number is, you know, so I just would have, I have to have it in my external memory, which is my smartphone. Right. And the access to the internet that's at the touch of a hand and what that can do as far as problem solving in the work domain and very appropriately so you know we talked about you can google a problem and you can you can find answers and you can find videos that'll that'll walk you through solution strategies and that's something that you know really hasn't been at at our fingertips at any point in you know history having that sort of access so yeah it's the the younger generation is more i think they have as their baseline that we are a connected human that we're connected to information sources through our everyday tools that are with us and maybe that's more of an additional step that uh, previous generations would have had to take yeah i agree with you it's um, this younger generation the technology is an extension of who they are yeah. for me it's a it's a mental shift oh i need to google something mm. right mm-hmm. and like i said i love this generation i think it could be the savior of our industry we're getting kind of close to starting to wind down the show this is the part where we have the red wing safety tip of oh, the week yeah. so tom you have a safety tip for us ah, i do i do great so it's one of my uh it's one of my favorite examples that i like to give the students as a way to to manage the effects of stress and to prepare yourself uh, so when people get under stress to different degrees, and I'm usually most interested in these like life-threatening or or my decision will impact others in a very high high risk sort of way. So w- what you want to do is not let the stress dial you into just exactly what's familiar and nothing else. And so uh, I, I like this example because I tell my students in this current building, you know, our, our lovely building here, I have probably 
a thousand different ways that I could traverse from the parking lot to my office that makes sense. You know, several different stairwells, different combinations of, you know, elevators and stairs and, and entryways and everything like that. And if I were to do what most people do and park in about the same spot, take about the same path every day, and I did this for years and years, and I never really deviated from that, well, then that one time when the building's on fire and I need to get out and I'm under the level of stress where I fear for my life, I'm only going to be remembering those familiar pathways. And so if that, if my my normal path in and out of the building does not uh, work in this particular case, I'll be a lot better prepared to think outside the box, to think of alternative strategies if those are part of my repertoire. So so what I tell students is try to take a different way in every day. You know, <laughs> I don't know how well it works, but that's my, uh, no, that's that's, my strategy. That, that's great. So what you're doing is is you're, you're giving yourself multiple situation awareness drills. Yeah, essentially. Unintentionally, <laughs> yeah. right? Just every day take a different – and that's a great tip. I mean, even if you work in an office, there has to be more than one way to get to your office. Yeah, and especially if right. you're on a job site, yeah. look at your alternative route and take them so that you have them stored in your head. That's a great one, Tom. That's oh, a, oh, good. <laughs> and speaking of great stuff, Tom, see that bag right there? Oh, yeah. That's the Red Wing Offshore bag. It has become a cult item. People offer us cash for that, and we won't Ooh. take it because it's not ethical. Um, plus, Red Wing would probably quit sponsoring our show. <laughs> but it's easy. If you want a red one, it's very simple. You go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put your information in, and we draw one lucky winner a week. And this week's winner is Alan Smith. He's a Derek came with ICD. Congratulations, Alan. You have won this awesome Red Wing Offshore bag. So, Tom, man, this has been really great stuff. You're doing some really exciting stuff. You've got some great students. If people wanted to find out more about your program in the university, where should they go? Oh, great. Thanks. So, yeah, you can find me on our departmental webpage. We're the Department of Industrial and Systems Engineering, and we're at Texas A&M University. <laughs> you can use your your extensions of your self-Google ability to, to find us. We'll put a link in the show oh. notes. People can just click on it. Fantastic. And, and if people want to find out more about you personally, I'm guessing LinkedIn. Oh, great. No, actually, you'll find me through the, the department webpage okay. as well. But you'll also find a couple of links to like our lab webpage and my email address, which is on there. And please email me if there are questions out there. Yeah, no, that's that's perfect. So, yeah, we'll throw all those links in the okay, show great. notes so people can just click and go check out what you're doing. I'm telling you, if you work in the oil and gas industry and you touch hs &E, you need to check out what they're doing because they're using a lot of the existing tools from other disciplines to come up with unique and novel ways to solve problems in our industry that affect safety metrics and also productivity. So great stuff, really cool things going on. We talked about the offshore bag. If you listen to the show and you like the show, you're part of our community. So do me a favor, help your fellow community members and help spread the word. So uh, share this podcast with your friends, your coworkers. If you work for a big company, do that all company reply all and just put a link to the podcast in there. And if, if you do that, actually send me a screenshot of it and I'll send you something really cool. But then if you want to connect with this show and our other shows, because we have uh, Oil and Gas this week and then Oil and Gas Industry Leaders, and we have about four more coming out for 2018 that I can't talk about yet, go check out our LinkedIn group. So it's uh, OGGN.com on LinkedIn. It's the companion to this show and all the other shows. And then we have to give a big shout out to our on the road sponsors. Total Land, the world's most advanced field man land management system. If you're in that landman's world, go check them out. They make your life so much easier. And Lee Heck Harrison, they're global experts in talent management. If you need help with leadership or workforce transformation, take a look at them. We'll put links in the show notes for that as well. Tom, man, this has been a great interview. You're touching a lot of really cool stuff. I could geek out with you and your students all day. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks very much, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's great. Yeah. yeah, this has been awesome. All right, so folks, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. 
Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond. All right, Tom, what's the craziest thing you've ever seen in the field? <laughs> oh, good. Okay. So I mentioned I, I did my graduate work in anesthesiology. It's a great, great field for describing a, a visually and auditorily demanding environment and trying to supervise, you know, what's going on with this patient, the decisions you make, the inputs you gave, you know, they, they will affect the life. And so as, a, as an engineering student, uh, I spent a lot of time shadowing anesthesia and I, I had worked with several really excellent anesthesiologists and, you know, clinical experts, but also really great teachers. Right. And so, uh, you know, as I'm shadowing them, I would be asking questions whenever I could, when it wouldn't interfere with what they're doing. And most of my questions I remember, uh, had a lot to do with, uh, well, what does it look or sound like when X happens? Because it's, you know, it's all about making sure attention gets drawn to the most important things in the smoothest way possible. And so looking at, uh, you know, when, when a patient starts to crash, what does it look like? And I would ask things like, well, what does it look like when this oxygenation level goes down? And one of the anesthesiologists I got to work with would uh, routinely do things like this. And he'd say, well, let me show you. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, so he would, uh, you know, disconnect the breathing tube for a a short period of time. And and I, I'm, I'm certain (laughs) that this is not, not a big deal. And I learned enough to know that it, the human body is incredibly resilient. And there are things during an anesthesia procedure, which would lead to that anyway. But yeah, it's kind of surprising when you say, well, what, you know, what does it sound like when, when there's this problem with their breathing or with their cardiac patterns or whatever? And, oh, let me just, I'll show you here. I'll dial it in. <laughs> we'll just, that, that's, yeah. that's too funny. It's crazy. Yeah. So. <laughs>